Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I'm an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China, and I'm the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Denise Cruz, who is an assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Toronto. We will discuss her book, Trans-Pacific Femininities, The Making of the Modern Filipina, which was published by Duke University Press in 2012. Trans-Pacific Femininities traces representations of Filipinas in literature and in popular culture during periods of transitional power. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Denise Cruz, who is an assistant professor in the Department of English at the University of Toronto. We will discuss her book, Trans-Pacific Femininities, The Making of the Modern Filipina, which was published by Duke University Press in 2012. Trans-Pacific Femininities traces representations of Filipinas in literature and in popular culture during periods of transitional power in the Philippines, from the transition from Spanish to American colonial power, then to Japanese imperialism, then to independence and the Cold War, and then to contemporary global capital. Professor Cruz questions how these disruptions in power destabilized the elite classes and provided moments of possibility for writers to shift ideas of femininity in the Philippines and for Filipinas abroad. Rather than focus solely on gender within the Philippines, Cruz also considers how Filipina femininity was made through imperial networks from Spain, Japan, America, and across the, book, the globe. Uh, in doing so, she exposes how the makings of the Filipina was often meant to be seen as both natural and national, but was in fact a strategic response to shifting colonial powers as well as to the demands of the global capital market. Uh, so Denise, sorry for that long-ish intro. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Christopher. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about what brought you to study uh, gender in the Philippines, how you came across uh, these rich archives? Sure. The beginning of the book really started with a fairly simple question, although that question does require a little bit of preface. Um, I was studying American literature at UCLA in graduate school, and in the course of studying that, I became really interested in the Spanish-American War. I had done some work on the 19th century, um, and I became fascinated with the Spanish-American War and with the occupation of the Philippines. And in the course of looking at that, I noticed two different things. And the first was that even though at the time there had been a lot of interest in the Spanish-American War as a moment of burgeoning U.S. empire, so I'm thinking something like Amy Kaplan and Donald Pisa's Cultures of the United States Imperialism, and there was a lot of scholarship starting around that moment, there wasn't really any discussion of writers from the Philippines or how Philippines might have, the Philippines might have been engaging with that moment. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I also noticed that um, 
there was just, even though I, I would say scholars in Asian American and Philippine studies had been also aware of these transnational dynamics of U.S. empire, knowledge of authors in the early 20th century, so not post-1950 or post-1960s, hmm. knowledge of early 20th century was authors was very limited. Mm-hmm. And so these two things kind of converged for me, and I started to ask the question, well, given the importance of the the U.S. occupation, um, where are the Filipina and Filipino writers, and what might they be thinking of of uh, what was happening in terms of nationalism, in terms of empire at the time? Mm-hmm. And so then what I started doing was really just looking for the writers. Um, and it, it started really broadly by looking for anthologies and just kind of, kind of trying, to, trying to figure out or trace a literary history mm-hmm. of early Filipino and uh, Filipino-American writing. And there were, there were definitely anthologies. This fascination with women, um, why was it so different than the dominant stereotype that I had become used to or that was more popular? Um, and uh, what were the historical reasons behind that, the cultural reasons behind that? What were... Or was this fascination with women coming from? Mm-hmm. I wonder if your your cover, the cover of your book, is also quite interesting, just because I yeah. probably brought my own prejudices to it because I, I saw it, and I was like, this must, they're they're kind of, um, I don't remember what year this was, <laughs> it was like nineteen twenties or something. Uh, yeah, it's uh, schoolgirls, right? Uh, Filipino schoolgirls, I guess. And I, I had assumed that they were kind of taking like ethics classes or something. I don't know, um, but yeah. I think it turns out that they're um, ba- ba- bas- a basketball team or something. Yeah. Right? Like, that was a very kind of interesting way into, like, oh, I guess I also have these ideas <laughs> about what I'm expecting. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, yeah, you know what's interesting about that cover is that um, originally when we were looking at um, images for the cover, um, there's actually the woman in the center is holding a basketball. Mm-hmm. So in the bottom center, she's actually holding a basketball. So you're right that you actually don't find that out until the beginning of the book and it does look like they're kind of um you know uh in school and then you only find out later that those are actually um the the, the part of their basketball playing uniform mm-hmm. yeah um but yes I, I mean i think in part um part of what i was trying to look at throughout the book was the ways in which these women um were kind of constantly wrestling with um various expectations around what it meant to be a woman at this time um, and how they were both, you know, at times, sure, you know, agreeing with them or fulfilling them, but uh, many other times also resisting them, questioning them, imagining new ways of being a Filipina. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to talk about this this history without looking immediately to the present, I think, uh, because there's so much great work being done on, uh, you know, Filipinas' experiences nowadays and you know, as like servants to globalization, as domestic workers, but also as cosmopolitan subjects and these kind of things. Uh, is there something, uh, you, something that you found unique about the Philippine experience today that your history or your genealogy helps explain? Uh, or uh, yeah. yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways I was inspired by a lot of that contemporary work. Mm. Um, so. Um, uh, you know, things like Rafael Perennis' work, which you mentioned, or, or Kathy Choi's um, uh, work on nurses, or Nefertiti Terrio's work on fantasy production. So all of this, um, in terms of ca- contemporary scholarship of Filipino women, was really fascinating to me. Um, and one of the things that was interesting as I looked at these early constructions of Filipino women was that I found that if you look at the literature and cultural production of the time, that 
literature and cultural production actually start enacting or creating the version of the Filipina as, um, let's see, a wife or a caregiver or as um, someone who is uh, nurturing. Mm-hmm. All of this, I think, emerges as a response in part to this other version of Filipina femininity that I found, this, this kind of new woman, mm-hmm. um, the Filipina suffragette, the Filipina co-ed. The co-ed. <laughs> and so, yeah, so as a result, or, or, um, or the Filipina college student, as a result, what ends up happening is there's this turn instead to, especially I think in the 1940s, 1950s, this notion of the Filipina heart, mm. what it means for a Filipina to be a caring um, woman, what it means, means for the Filipina to be a mother of the new nation, and for what it means for the Filipina to be um, kind of a global citizen. And this rhetoric of the heart, which really comes up, I think, in the 40s and 50s, I see it now today in and this kind of fascination with, uh, say, the Filipino mail order bride or Filipinos as domestic caregivers. Um, so in part, what I wanted to do was trace a genealogy of where these kind of constructs emerged, mm. and that's what I tried to do in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get a, a bit more into the historical context of the book. Yeah. Um, there's been so much upheaval and so much change you know, in the Philippines in the last 100 years, uh, right. and I like... One thing I really liked about your book is you you kind of just own those and really focus on those transitions of power from Spanish to American, uh, American to Japanese, independence and all that. Uh, why structure the book on, on these kind of trans- transitional moments? Like, you, I think one of the main uh, uh, notions about how these are usually taken up is that the elite classes don't change all that much with the land-owning classes. A lot of the families right. seem to say, stay the same, stay, also stay in power, but... Uh, what's also interesting is they also change their identities consistently as each kind of regime comes up, and they, they have to find there's rupturing moments, I suppose. Uh, so why focus right. on those moments, and what do we kind of get out of out of that kind of uh, genealogy that hops from transition to transition? Right. Sure. That's really. Um, that's. I, I mean, I love the way that you're reading that part of the book because, in part, the title, the transpacific in the title mm-hmm. was. Um, really interested in the transition from one empire to another mm-hmm. or from one empire to a nation. Um, and um, the idea of transition, um, you know, came up in part by um, my interest in thinking about the Philippines as not just, I guess, dominated primarily by U.S. Philippine interaction, which I, th- I think has is, is really been critical, of course, mm-hmm. to a lot of scholarship on the Philippines for much of the 20th century. But there's been um, other studies, too, who have shown the importance of the Spanish Empire. Um, and uh, for me, one of the gaps that I was interested in addressing was the gap of the Japanese occupation. Um, mm. Because I think a lot of times um, I tended to do it, too. You know, we kind of skipped over that um, and moved right from U.S. Philippine occup- occupation to independence. Um, mm. And so one of the things I started noticing um, from the literature itself was that they you know, these writers were really quite cognizant about these overlaps, um, especially, as you say, for the elite, because if you think about it, um, uh, you know, as, as the elite are trying to retain power, they're faced with this decision of uh, which kind of um, which which kind of powerful regime they, they 
kind of need to align themselves mm-hmm. with. Um, is it Spanish? Is it the United States? Um, later on, is it the Japanese? And so it was at these moments, critical moments of transition, that I found that representations around Filipino femininity became especially fraught mm-hmm. because um, the Filipino woman really became the site at which people were trying to determine um, Filipino and Filipina identity at this period. It was the future of the nation really hinged, I think, in a lot of ways upon um, how how these people were imagining women. And so in part, part of the desire to focus on these transitions really stemmed from that, this recurring pattern in which I, I saw that at these key moments in Philippine history, these were the moments when... Um, you know, uh, Filipino femininity became especially prominent when they were talking about it in the, not only in literature, but also in the periodical press and government proceedings. Mm. Um, and a lot of this, too, stemmed from the fact that, um, you know, the discourse of women's rights and women's suffrage in the Philippines really overlapped with transitions in empire and national identity at the time, mm-hmm. too. And so, so there were these two kind of convergences that um, that really started shaping the arc of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, why else? You mentioned that title, uh, that keyword in the title, Trans-Pacific. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like you are focusing on uh, Filipinos both in Hawaii uh, and the U.S., uh, the U.S. mainland. Uh, was this kind of dissemination of notions of the Filipina uh I, I'm, I'm assuming, of course, it wasn't equal, but was it, did it seem different in different sides? So who was the main audience, mostly in the Philippines? Oh, right, in terms of who the writers were writing for mm-hmm. and the like. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you see it, it working out in, in uh, different ways, as, as you say, where the particularities of the site are important. Um, so um, I think it's important to say, too, or to for people to know that the, the writers that I'm working on um, or that I worked on were based primarily in Manila. Mm-hmm. And so this notion of the cosmopolitan city and what that meant for Filipino women was very important. So the writers working um, or writing for this audience, they were very quite a, quite aware that they were writing for an English literate elite, mm-hmm. um, uh, an elite that was familiar with um uh, you know, the United States, for example, um, or later on during the Japanese occupation, an elite that was under duress because of the, um, the place of English during uh, the Japanese war. Mm. And the situation of writers in Manila was very different from the situation of writers um, in the United States, where often um, those writers were more spread out, where they were writing to an audience um, in which um, they were quite aware of their presence in the U.S. as a minority. Um, they were quite aware of, um, you know, tensions around Filipino labor. So Felicidad Campos' romances, for example, um, she's very careful in her romances to distance her lead uh, female characters from Filipino laborers. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's uh, quite strategic in that by kind of claiming um, over and over again that her character is an elite woman, that she has Spanish ancestry. And then she does it in other ways, too, by just kind of um, constructing uh, lead female ca- characters who aren't even Filipina at all or aren't identifiable as Filipina. So, so for sure, um, the location of publication does mm-hmm. make a difference in terms of, of the the authors and, and the audience they're writing for. Well, and you mentioned that the, the casual use of English and writing to, like, elite or, you know, I guess what we would think of as, like, more cosmopolitan English speakers. Uh, but then, yeah. you know, any kind of work on Anglophone literature is always 
continually has to point out that how invested <laughs> this language is with entitlement, power, dominance, uh, elitism, right. and all these things. Uh, how did you did you handle this? How did you handle this issue, particularly uh, in your book? Yeah, um, in part, what I wanted to do was um, to uh, look at why English became so important and why <laughs> Anglophone literature, in particular, was an interesting, uh, even cultural object. Um, and for me. Um, in part, this this came about because of the importance of English during the occupation. Mm. So, um, and other scholars have commented, like Vince Raphael, for example, or Meg Wessling have commented on how the um, or studied how the U.S. imperial regime. One of the things that they did was they established a large scale public educational system, mm. uh, and they almost immediately, alongside that, instituted English as the national language. And so, those two things. Uh, went together. Um, so that's one of the reasons why, uh, really, only a decade or two after um, uh, the, the United States had occupied the Philippines, we get this rapid emergence of Filipino literature. Now, what was interesting to me about that was that um, English, even though, say, one narrative of it would be that, um, you know, English spread so rapidly, it was kind of accepted by the population. That actually wasn't true. Um, so there was actually a lot of anxiety on the behalf of the English Filipino and Filipina mm. writer, especially at moments when um, uh, nationalist debates were at their height. So in the 1920s and 1930s, there's a lot of discussion um, uh, among English writers about the purpose of English literature. And so we have this art for art's sake almost movement mm -hmm. sponsored by someone like Jose Garcia Villa. Mm -hmm. And then we have another moment or another movement by Salvador Lopez that's more about, okay, that English should be a socialist, uh, social realist and political project. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was really interesting uh, to me, the ways in which these English writers were quite aware and quite self-reflexive about their position, their fraught position in the in the national community at the time. So, for example, they were talking, you know, there's a lot of periodical press um, essays and editorials about who is even reading Filipino literature in English, what is the purpose of the writer, um, who is a better writer, the Filipino writer or the Filipina writer. <laughs> this is happening all in part because the English writer is very aware of her or his position. Mm. Um, and this is in part, too, because at this time that we, we have um, – also a flowering of Tagalog literature, and the, the Tagalog um, um, writers are also um, quite dominant at this time, and that's just one of the many national languages in the Philippines. Um, so English became really important for me, not just at this moment in the 1920s or 30s, but then I saw it recur again with the Japanese occupation, when um, in part because of um, the Japanese regime's desire to distance the Philippines from the West, they began actively encouraging Tagalog and Filipino writing, mm. um, Filipino language writing. And um, so then, again, at, the, at this moment, there is um, a period in which English literature is uh, being contested at this time. Mm. Uh, before we jump into your chapters, I want to ask yeah. actually a question about the language that you use in your book. Uh, sure. it's, it's kind of like deceptively simple or just seemingly simple. You use mm -hmm. terms like uh, midways, byways, mapping. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you often use the term like made rather than produced something like as in sure. uh, the makings of the Filipina rather than something like uh, the production of the figure of, of right. the Filipina um, and or the representations of the Filipina. So I don't know. It, it, 
I don't know if it seems odd to you, but it was a bit new to me. Was this a deliberate decision on your part? Sure. The the idea of the making of uh, uh, the modern Filipino as opposed to the production was a um, a definite mm. decision for me. And in part, this, this goes alongside other cultural studies work in which um, that the really calls attention to how these productions or representations of women had material both material basis and material effects. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, I became really interested in how, I think one, one of the most interesting moments for me was um, the women's suffrage debates mm -hmm. in the Philippines on the floor of, um, you know, the, of, of um, the proceedings over whether or not Filipino women should have a vote, and they actually start mm -hmm. referring to literary figures. And so I was really curious about this overlap of, you know, real lived realities of women and um, representation, literary, um, cultural, otherwise. And so that's in part why I chose the term making. But I was in midways. The language of mapping has always been really interesting to me. And it started really in, um, when I was working on the book as a dissertation. Um, in part, the language of mapping um, was interesting to me because of the, um, just the, the idea of cartography in general um, in imperial discussions um, and as an imperial form of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But it also became um, a metaphor for me just because um, part of what became so present for me was the ways in which my, you know, what it meant to be a scholar based in the U.S. studying the Philippines um, and what that had meant for me in terms of the amount of knowledge I, I had about uh, say Filipino women or Filipino authors. I mean, we we began talking about how um, the archive necessarily shifted the the picture of Filipino women that I was seeing, and so for me, it just became really natural to use this notion of um, mapping um, to use routes like byways and midways um, as a way of of kind of theorizing both the idea of looking at other archives, but mm -hmm. also at looking at um, at uh, intersections, um, so that's where the term midways. So, and, you know, theoretically this draws upon things like Black Atlantic scholarship, city scholarship, that also use similar language. Yeah, I liked midways. Midways and byways were one of my favorites, <laughs> two of my favorites. Okay. Uh, can you can you define those for us, just how you're using them? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, byways and midways I really talk about in detail in the first chapter mm -hmm. of the book. Um, the midway, it's actually interesting, the midway is a term really... Um, and have started to take on a different cast in the early uh, 20th century in part because of the prominence of world, world fairs. Mm -hmm. um, so on one hand, um, the Midway really started begin beginning to take on this capital letter Midway M, uh, Midway significance in which it was about a, almost like a, a, a runway or staging of events in which people could kind of walk down the Midway mm -hmm. at the World Fair and look at different, um, you know, uh, exhibits. Of course, the World's Fair was really important for um, Filipino-American history because this is one of the moments where, uh, you know, the Philippines was really on display um, for the American populace in terms of they brought, um, actually, uh, you know, they set up a Philippine, a Filipino village um, for World's Fair attendance. I like the, the metaphor of the Midway, too, so in part I was interested in it as a historical occurrence, mm -hmm. but also I was interested in it um, in terms of this idea of, uh, um, of intersection, of overlap, which is so important to um, my, um, my way of understanding Filipino literary and cultural production, this idea that we can't get away from these transitional moments that 
actually these transitional moments are some of the most interesting. Um, and so um, I, this is one of the reasons why I, I even use the term midway. Byway, um, I uh, kind of, you know, was an offshoot of my interest in the midway where I, I began thinking about the archival archival roots are the, the different archives that we know about in terms of Filipino literature. And so Byways um, is really a way of thinking about, you know, um, just uh, uh, texts that we aren't aware of um, or archival um, strategies that may not be readily familiar. So it can encompass, say, for example, um, taking the unacknowledged uh, route by looking at a new archive of material um, in the Philippines. And so um, for me, I was really interested in how these two things, the byways and midways in terms of the actual archive and then the theory that you use to approach the archive could produce um, new knowledge around uh, trans-Pacific women. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's then get into your first chapter. It's a, okay. It seems like it's kind of a recovery project of some lost archival material, uh, yeah. or at least material that very few people ever hear of, even people who study the Philippines. Uh, as far as a, I guess this is all from the years of American colonization, uh, and right. it seems like these they're female authors struggling with kind of the the immediate uh, characterization that they're like uh, romantic. Exoticized, and I guess a lot of this is coming from how Japanese women were often seen as like geisha girls or butterflies or something, and so this is kind of being displaced onto Filipinas. And um, this still seems like a kind of dominant uh, character, but there are also uh, uh, other types of femininity being produced. So, can you tell us a bit about uh, what you found there? Yeah, sure. Um, so. Um Yes, your assessment, I think, of, of the dominant cultural tropes of the early 20th century are, are right on in terms of, um, you know, if you have this version of Asian femininity that is like the butterfly or the exotic figure, then you have the other version of femininity that's like the mother figure. Um, and I became interested in how um, Filipino women mm-hmm. would have been... Um, uh, responding to some of these developments. So it was a re- recovery uh, project in that um, uh, what I first wanted to do was kind of document historically and culturally how uh, Filipino women were circulating, and so I did it by um, just looking at photographs, looking at, um, you know, uh, periodical discourse around Filipino women. But then I also um, recovered a series of essays by trans-Pacific Filipino elites. So these were women who um, traveled to the United States as pensionados, mm-hmm. so they were university-sponsored students. Um, and they studied at American institutions, and they wrote essays about their experience. And so um, these essayists um, were, they were both in part sometimes critiquing U.S. constructs of, of Filipino feminine, and they did that in interesting ways. So some of them, uh, for example, what they decided to do was valorize instead the Spanish version of Filipino femininity mm. as a way of rejecting the American new woman or the notion that um, Americans would liberate Filipino women. Um, and others um, instead chose to kind of um, critique notions of the East. Mm. Um, and so that's in part what this first chapter was doing, is really kind of um, looking at how Filipino women writers were responding to dominant um, cultural discourse. The second half of the chapter shifts the stage a little bit from the United States to um, 
uh, debates around Filipino literature in English in the Philippines itself. And what I look at there, um, it's, it's really in part about the conditions of being a Filipino writer at this time. What it meant to be a Filipino writer in this situation in which, um, you know, English language was, English language writing was already contested, but also a situation in which men dominated the field and were very dismissive of Filipino women writers. And so I was, I looked there at, um, uh, a writer, Ligaya, Victoria Reyes, who really became uh, central to that chapter and kind of thinking about how, well, she was just really discussing this, this circle of Filipino writers and this, um, the ways in which Filipino writers created community and responded to, um, to the the debates around nationalist literature at the time. You uh, you mentioned two types of uh, femininity: the kind of Spanish femininity, and then the the Americanized one. I suppose. Yeah. Can you clue us in a bit about the differences between those? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the dominant Spanish versions of femininity. Um, is really inspired in a lot of ways, and it's still in circulation in the Philippines today by Jose Rizal's Maria Clara. Mm-hmm. And so Jose Rizal's novel, Millie Matangare, was published in the late 19th century. It's um, really seen as one of the, or as the first Filipino nationalist uh, novel. And in it, it, it traces in part a love story between um, the lead male character and this woman, Maria Clara, who is a mestiza. So she's mixed race. Her father is a Spanish friar, um, although that's only discovered later. Um, and so she is characterized in the novel as um, very passive, um, as uh, they even call her as the, the epitome of the nation or of the country at the time. Um, she is, uh, you know, she has beautiful white skin. Um, she is uh, weak. Um, she's kind of uh, subservient mm-hmm. at all times to Christosmo. Um And so this becomes an image of Filipina femininity. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about Maria the, the chapter is um, I think Rizal is actually quite critical mm-hmm. and critical right. of this version of Spanish femininity at the time. But then what ends up happening is that this character becomes an icon mm-hmm. of Filipina womanhood. It becomes extracted. And I think that one of the reasons why she becomes an icon is because people begin to compare her to the mm-hmm. new woman, the new Filipino woman or the new American woman. Mm-hmm. So when I say when I say new American or new Filipino woman, what I mean really is if you think about the suffragette or the flapper mm-hmm. of the 1920s or 30s, the educated woman, the woman who uh, kind of... Um, uh, is interested in women's suffrage. Is uh, you know hangs out at jazz and swing clubs. Um, you know uh, wears Western dress. Um, this is the, the emergence of another form of Filipino woman that's also happening at a time that people see as tied to the quote unquote American new new woman. Mm-hmm. So Filipino writers are very much aware of these two different constructs, and they they form different um, and often. Uh, uh, you know, difficult to entangle relationships with these two icons. Mm-hmm. Your your second chapter seems to really outline these the those two icons, the the Spanish mestiza uh, Maria Clara, and then you call the Americanized one, I think, the Westernized Filipina coed. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then you, you also add two more: the um, the romanticized barrio girl and the pre-colonial yeah. India. Uh, so, can you tell us about uh, these other two figures and all how all these figures sure. were kind of formed and came to play such a heavy role? Yeah, sure. Um, and so in the 1920s and 30s, I really saw the um, these these four women in circulation. And so um, I think 
the the debates around Filipino femininity at the time really centered on the the, the character or the the figure that I call the Filipina poet. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a woman who is educated often at U.S. universities, who started to um, you know, find jobs, who um, isn't necessarily interested in marriage, who dances, is athletic. It's kind of, um, it's again similar to um, if if you were to think of the, the U.S. flapper figure. Mm-hmm. This is this is how she's pictured or depicted uh, in in Manila at the time. Now, in response to that. <clears throat> People begin, this is where really the valorization of, say, someone like Maria Clara happens. One of the things I noticed was that in the 1950s, um, a woman, Carmen Guerrero, writes an essay about the Filipino woman, and she talks about the Filipino woman in comparison to what she calls um, uh, the Maria Clara, who has been kind of constructed by what she calls iconoclasts of the 30s. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to the 30s to see what that actually meant. And, and I think it, this is really the moment where Maria Clara just gets recalled and kind of reformulated in a lot of ways. Now, what also ends up happening is, okay, so if you think about Maria Clara, she has ties to Spanish empire, so she's somewhat problematic for, say, a Filipino or Filipina nationalist who wants to distance themselves from the imperial. Mm-hmm. And so what people then end up doing is they end up creating other iconic Filipino women who supposedly represent some sort of pre-colonial identity. So um, the uh, barrio girl or the India or indigenous woman becomes really very mm-hmm. important here. Well, what they do is they end up kind of taking up these characteristics of a woman as as being antithetical to the Filipino co-ed, so someone who is uh, loyal to the home and family, who is... Um, you know, uh, who is still kind of strong and resilient, and they end up transferring them into the bodies of uh, women from the country, countryside, rural women, or um, women who are pre-colonial. Mm. Um, I do think that these other two figures end up having a lasting sway um, in Filipino cultural and uh, culture in general, because we we also see them pop up throughout the course of the 20th century as well. So um, I was looking at how these figures, these other figures, the pre-colonial women or barrier women, kind of haunt this discourse of Filipino femininity. They're not always acknowledged or maybe necessarily are always seen as connected to this idea of the Spanish versus westernized mm-hmm. Filipino women, but they're necessarily, they're, they are necessary to uh, the conversation. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that all these figures kind of had in common, like certain values, that it was like, well, every Filipino woman has to, of course, have these values or something, even though they were contrasted yeah. with each other? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's interesting, like this ca- characteristic of, of of strength or loyalty to the nation mm-hmm. um, became really important um, to all of them. Um, this idea of of w- what it means to be independent, although they all took on different casts. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I would say that um, runs throughout these figures that I really tried to underscore is that despite the fact that they were Iconic. If you look very closely at their construction um, in the literature and and say the print discourse around them, they're actually quite complicated and not stabilized at all. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I would say that in addition to having these interests in things like strength, types of the nation, um, some sort of form of supposed independence, at the same time, one of the dominant things that spreads them all together is their instability. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move to your third chapter, which then considers yeah. uh, two novels from the period, two romances. Uh, Kalau's The Filipino Rebel, uh, Campo's The Brown Maiden. Uh, tell, can you tell us a bit about these novels, how femininity became kind of crucial to making uh, f- for these authors a kind of more modern or 
perhaps more Americanized, more Anglicized Philippine society? Sure. Um, you know, these two authors, interesting, there were the two, there were two of the books that I, that I started reading first in mm. terms of where I first became interested in, in the project. And so, um, uh, I noticed two things about these novels when I read them together. Um, I read them very in, in close proximity to, to each other and both of them were really interested in the destiny or fate of Trans-Pacific um, or of, of Filipinas. And I was interested in the notion of destiny or fate um, just because of American Manifest Destiny mm. and this, this idea of the, um, uh, the acceptance or the, the, the narrative of U.S. empires being benevolent. And so um, the women, I was also interested in the women in these novels because um, they were so unlike the Filipina mother that I was more familiar with in other early literature. And so these women um, are both, um, Talos uh, uh, Josefa is, um, she's a woman, a rural woman. She's actually kind of like the burial woman figure who becomes a, um, she becomes educated uh, through U.S. education. Then she actually becomes a global women's suffrage Afro, uh, activist. And then Ocampo's lead character, who is a Filipina elite, who goes to the U.S. Um, because she marries a white captain. Um, she has these awful experiences with race pressures in the U.S., and she ends up leaving. Her U.S. education is basically it, it becomes an awareness of prejudice in the U.S., and she decides to leave and return to the Philippines <laughs> at the end. So they project both, um, in the end, very different plots yeah. for Filipino women, although what's similar about them is their interest in, in women who kind of flout social conventions. And so um, I became interested not just in these women, but in, in the terms of this, this idea of the elite, uh, exceptional um, Filipino and Filipina. And so I began to kind of think about the production of or the creation of Filipino elites during the American occupation. So in part, one of the things that they did was they funded Filipinos to come to the U.S. This kind of idea was, you come to the U.S., we'll, we will give you an educational opportunity. You'll have either a master's or a professional degree no medical degree, and then you'll return to the Philippines and you will become kind of leaders of the new Philippines, all with U.S., you know, education mm-hmm. and, um, and ideals, supposedly. And so I, I really can see these exceptional Filipinos, um, uh, Christina, uh, um, as, as Christine Tolentino calls them, um, or Cynthia Tolentino calls them, um, uh, professionals, mm-hmm. um, as essential to the, the, this idea of U.S exceptionalism in general. And so um, so uh, what I began looking at in these novels, these novels are romances, so on one hand, they really want to kind of create this idealized or supposedly idealized plot of what it means to be a Filipina or Filipino national, but they're also inter- interested, I think, in uh, kind of um, critiquing the U.S. occupation. And so Carlos Osefa is really outspoken. The, her male counterpart um, initially accepts the U.S. regime, and it ends up turning out very badly for him. So she's kind of valorized as the heroine of the work. And Ocampo's character, um, who comes into the United States um, with this kind of naive assumption um, of of romance and what it means to fall in love with a white American man, and in the end, none of that works out, and she decides instead that she her true fate is to return to the Philippines. Mm. Yeah, this seems like a common trait in some Filipino movies. <laughs> There's like a Filipino <laughs> woman who's t- torn between the white man and the Filipino, and usually they always choose the 
Filipino man. And in the end, they choose, yes, they, they end up cho- choosing the Filipino man. And so I think this is the, you know, this idea of thinking about where that comes from. Mm. So why is it that, um, you know, that is phrased in terms of the heterosexual romance, um, this idea of the future of the nation. And, and also, um, you know, what ha- I was also interested in what happens in the return or what, what prompts a woman to... Uh, in, in this novel, at least, to to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the romance becomes especially interesting just because, um, on the one hand, it's, it seems like a very, or it's, I guess it's, it's, we downplay it a lot in literary studies as, as being a more simplistic format because it's a popular romance, mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, as other scholars have shown, these popular romances are also the vehicle for um, kind of imagining some sort of resistance or looking at the ways in which these conventions around uh, Filipino femininity are, are actually quite influenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's go move to your fourth chapter, which focuses on um, that context you bring up before about the Japanese uh, yeah. occupation and then it's kind of, uh, res- again, forms of resistance to notions of uh, American imperialism kind of clashing here. Uh, can you tell us about how Filipino writers kind of dealt with issues of, of patriotism, the kind of pan-Asian sisterhood that the Japanese uh, were, were kind of parading around? Uh, how did you read these writers? How was uh, femininity changed, I guess, once again during this it's transition? Changed at this time, yeah. Um, so during the Japanese occupation, and um, this chapter is really close to my heart in part because this is the one that really, um, the, mm-hmm. I think, changed the book. Um, and so I went back to the Philippines um, to look at periodicals authored during um, the Japanese occupation. And I noticed um, something quite interesting in that um, a lot of the English writers, who were, of course, writing under duress because these um, periodicals were, well, they were censored and they were, they were supervised by the Japanese regime, I saw this return to ideals of the home. Um, so um, what ended up happening is, is some of the, the women writers, they kind of align the figure of the Western American woman who was being vilified by the Japanese regime at the time as, you know, okay, this woman has um, no kind of allegiance to the home at all. We instead want to align ourselves with, a pan-Asian sisterhood, and as, as uh, you, you know, you've identified, and how we're going to do that is we're going to employ what what one writer calls practical patriotism, mm. and I, I love the term practical patriotism because it was this idea that I think this acknowledgement of the fact that um, the that Filipino women were quite aware of of um, just what it meant to live under duress, what it meant to write under mm. duress, and and the fact that they. They were quite aware, too, I think, of strategically employing um, this notion of pan-Asian um, sisterhood as a way of, of surviving mm-hmm. the occupation. And the other thing that, that um, was critical to the chapter, too, is, you know, a lot of these writers, what became interesting to me is how they were reformulating the domestic as being this actual kind of strategy for for surviving the war. And so on one hand, you have practical patriotism where these, these women writers were like, okay, these are the things you need to do to survive um, during the war. Then um, the other version of that was um, in something like Yai Ma King's The Crucible, hmm. where she was a guerrilla figure and a guerrilla leader. And um, she also employs a version of the domestic uh, that she that I called, um, you know, guerrilla domesticity, where she becomes this 
mother figure, but she's also a military leader. Um, she's instant, interested absolutely in resistance and critiquing both the U.S. and Japanese regimes. Um, and so what I, what I wanted to underscore was the ways in which these Filipino women uh, kind of reimagine terms like motherhood, Mm. like sisterhood, um, all of these terms that are often, I think, aligned with either this unquestioned um, allegiance to a nation or to, uh, say, collaboration with the West. Mm. And they instead reimagine these as being fundamentally resistant identities, and that's something that was really um, important in all of these texts. Mm. So it has some of the same values as, like, uh, Maria Clara, but not the same kind of uh, allegiances, I suppose. Or politics, or politics, right, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And so that's, um, you know, and that goes back to this question of, you know, um, we were, when we think about this version of the Filipino mother, what does it mean to be a Filipino mother? Um, this iconic figure, it goes back to this idea that this iconic figure is actually, the, the writers kind of constantly return back to this iconic figure, but then also reformulate mm-hmm. it at the same time. The uh, So what you said about the Filipino with a good heart, you developed that notion and this is kind of yeah. getting closer to what we usually see in like contemporary work about mm-hmm. uh, Filipinos now uh, and kind of contemporary stereotypes. Uh, but your last chapter traces uh, the development of this kind of more familiar icon, uh, Filipina yeah. suited for domesticity, right, service work. Uh, but you trace this. Uh, I was very interested in this chapter because I uh, like uh, Bienvenido Santos's short story. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I like how you, so you talk about him and then. Uh, how he's kind of reread, or those same tropes are reread uh, by feminist authors, and all of this happening right in the background of the backdrop of the Cold War. Right. Right, and I think that. So yes, I mean the the, the original question of that chapter stems from this question in Scent of Apples, mm. where um, it's, it's this amazing short story. Mm. It's, it's, you know, where um, a elite Filipino narrator is there, and a Filipino farm farmer asks him, "Are our women the same <laughs> like they were 20 years ago?" And having done the research, I kind of knew what he meant, like what that 20 years ago figure meant. If this was like the 1920s, I knew exactly what they meant. So, on one hand, it's an interesting question because the 1920s is exactly a figure where what does that even mean? Filipino women were actually completely <laughs> uh, changing at that moment. But also what became interesting to me was that the narrator decides at that moment that he says, I'm going to lie to this man and say, yes, mm. they might have changed something outside, but on, inside and the heart, <laughs> the same. And so I began to see this kind of um, interest in the Filipino heart, and I think it was important um, because, as you say, the, this, it was emerging during the Cold War, the 1950s, um, which is also, incidentally, the 50th anniversary of um you know, the uh, 50 years of, of, of women's rights activism or formal women's, women's rights activism in the Philippines. Um, and so I was interested in the convergence of that. But what I became interested in is if this idea of, say, um, you know, so now it's, it, the terms have changed a little bit because the Philippines is independent. And um, these writers are thinking about the Philippines within this larger global discourse, and they're also quite aware of this idea of, um, you know, um, kind of global democracy as being about changing the hearts and minds of, of people across the world. And so then the Filipino heart becomes especially critical to this moment. Mm. Um, and this is taken up not only by writers like Ben Santos, but also by um, 
you know, other Filipino women writers of the time, like Maria Paz Mendoza Guazon or Encarnacion Alzona, who are interested in kind of also taking up this figure of the Filipino woman who are reflecting back on Filipino feminism. Mm. So I look at all of these texts together, and um, I, I do think that this is really a key moment in which this, this rhetoric of a heart that we now see is so prominent. As you said, it's so familiar now, not only in literature, but also kind of culturally in terms of how Filipino women are circulated today. So uh, why is it then that there's assumptions about what a Filipino nurse will be um, will be like? Or why is it that there's assumptions about what a Filipino wife will be like? All of these constructions, I think, um, are drawing upon this earlier conversation about the Filipino heart. And I was really interested in tracing that out in the literature. It also became important to me, though, because, um, you know, um, I, throughout working on this book, I was curious about what I would call, I think I call it in the, the instructions, like this Bolosan Hagedorn divide in mm. terms of how we even see literature and cultural production. So if for Bolosan, the kind of dominant image of Filipino women is this notion of like, okay, we're going to have a um, mother mm. isolated to the homeland and the male immigrant, there's ways in which we constantly see the early 20th century um, Filipino experience through that lens. It's, it's funneled through the male immigrant experience. Yet for the later 20th century, this is the moment where Jessica Hagedorn becomes so critical. Mm. And it's, it's kind of we immediately jump to this notion that, oh, these women are trans-Pacific, they're queer, they're resistant, mm. they're feminist, and there's no way really <laughs> of kind of holding these two things in mind. And so um, uh, that's, a, that's in part why I really wanted to look at um, – and kind of trace how these patterns recur and kind of are reformulated and, and why the Cold War became really important because I think that's really where this kind of, uh, where, uh, this notion of global Filipina sentiment became, uh, really critical. How did the, um, the, those Filipino feminist authors that you mentioned, how did they kind of respond yeah. to this image of the Filipino with a good heart? Were they positioned against it or, uh, as you might? <laughs> Or, or in between, in between it, I, you know, I actually think that they're quite in between. Or they're, they're, it's complicated because they employ it. Um, uh, and one of the things that they, you know, I um, I do in reading those those women is that they kind of absolutely take her up and, and kind of claim hybridity or mm-hmm. um, global sentiment. But I also think that one of the problems about um, her, I guess, I, would, I guess. One of the problematic parts of their representations or, or this claiming of, okay, we can be global citizens, mm-hmm. is that I do think in part what they do is they um, they end up sidelining, say, indigenous women, or they end up kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of participating in the ways in which, in order to privilege them themselves as the elite and claim global responsibility, I do think some of the women that I'm looking at end up accepting this global progress narrative. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, and uh, create this sweeping version of, of trans-Pacific women that, in the end, also sidelines um, other um, other women in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting seeing how this kind of seems to play out nowadays. When uh, mm-hmm. I guess when we think of cosmopolitan subjects or people who travel a lot, right? We don't think of the Filipina maid or the the service worker, though, like, almost as if they hold some kind of authentic kernel like uncorruptibility, <laughs> even though they're right. traveling all the time, they're going to different places. Uh, right, right, right. It's true that they are, they are uh, kind of by nature of their, their service work and kind of traveling all the time, right? They're, but then there's a way in which they become aligned with the home mm-hmm. still. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> even though, as we're saying, they're they're constantly mobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's move to your epilogue, where you uh, transition to multimedia archives, particularly uh, yeah. Uh, David Byrne's album Here Lies Love I think I saw you this is the one I saw you present on <laughs> yeah <laughs> I recognize you uh, the presence of so you, you talk about this album and then also the presence of Filipinos on websites as male or brides right. as maids right uh, why these this multiple archives at the end of your book what did you discover I, here yeah um, so in part um, I became really interested in these contemporary manifestations of of the women that, that I had been studying. Um, and David Burns' Here Life Love had come out, right, in, in the midst of my writing a book. And I thought it was absolutely it was so odd and incredible <laughs> that this even existed. Um, and um, at the same time, I was also curious about, um, since, as, as we've discussed, you know, there is this, um, uh, one of the major constructs of Filipino femininity is this notion of, the mail order bride or the caregiver. Um, I was really curious about how um, Filipino women were actually responding to this, and one of the ways in which they were responding to it. So, one of the things I thought about is, okay, if I'm interested in the circulation of a certain kind of Filipino femininity, and for me, during the early 20th century, one of the dominant ways in which Filipino women were circulated were in print. It was in print culture. The contemporary analog, I thought, to that was online um, and in multimedia. And so, David Burns was kind of David Bird's album was was um, constructed as this multimedia object, so it has includes film, it includes the the clips. Um, so tell us what, it, what it's it includes, about or who it's know, about. What is it? Oh yes, right. Okay, so Here Lies Love. The idea is it's um, it's about um, Imelda Marcos. It's in the voice of Imelda Marcos mm-hmm. and also um, her. Uh, caregiver, Australia Kumbas. Um, and so what Byrne does is he kind of takes, like, you know, he says that he's basing it in part on his own archival research and I- interviews um, with people about the Marcuses, but he becomes really fascinated with the figure of Amelda Marcus in general. And so he creates these dance tracks and ballads that are sung by Amelda Marcos or her um or her caregiver, and if you look at them on, and the the actual album itself looks like a book, and when you open it up, it has these liner notes and photos, and um, and then if you download the tracks, you can actually see the the video that comes with them. They're all kind of spliced together. What's um, interesting about it to me is that the ways in which people responded to it. So sure that there were people who are very critical of even the use of Imelda Marcos as a figure of kind of uh, what people were saying was, you know, is this glorifying the figure of Imelda Marcos. But then there was also this other reaction, um, which was, wow, this is really an amazing album, and the songs are really great dance songs. I just love to <laughs> sing and dance to them. So there was this idea that people were like, um, just really um, that you could somehow become Imelda Marcos. Mm while listening to this. And so um, I became interested in this because, of course, of how because if you think about a trans-Pacific Filipina in the contemporary moment, the figure that people would immediately recognize is Imelda Marcos. So I was interested in, in what that meant mm-hmm. to kind of reconstruct her and to, to use her voice and to reconstruct her as paired with her caregiver, mm-hmm. who is in the end, although there are many tracks that are sympathetic to her voice, in the end she's totally sidelined from the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to pair that with with Filipino feminists, um, bloggers and, um, you know, archivists or online archivists, I would call them, who are constructing um, counter, you know, just websites that counter the search engine results that are produced mm. when, say, you Google 
if you go Google Filipina mm-hmm. right now, you know, one of the, the dominant hits you'll get will be kind of service sites or romance or dating sites. And so um, that was something that I was interested in, is how these women were actually um, uh, kind of theorizing this, trying to form this alternate story of Filipino women, which is very similar to what the women in the early 20th century were, were, were doing. And so mm-hmm. I loved looking at that continu- continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, in the end, for me, it was about how literature and culture has material results in the world mm. around us and how we need to historicize these things, understand them, learn about them, teach them in order to really make or affect any changes. Well, that seems like a great uh, place to start to end off, actually. Uh, <laughs> great words of wisdom. Well, Denise, uh, we've taken up uh, a lot of your time. Can you tell us about any new research that you've been working on lately? Sure. Um, yeah, um, so I'm working on two things right now, um, and uh, one of them is more directly related to this project, so I'll talk, spend a little bit more time talking about that. Um, the project I'm, I'm working on right now is um, about global Filipino fashion, um, and, you know, it stems in part from this, this interest in uh, Filipino women because a lot of the ways in which these women were coded as being transgressive or... or um, as resistant was through their dress. Mm. Um, and so I became really interested in, in fashion in general. But I was also interested in terms of how um, uh, Filipino fashion is operating right now. And so um, uh, because of contacts I have in the fashion industry, I'm, I'm doing um, in large part a, a cultural study of contemporary Filipino couture. So I'm looking at the ways in which um, in Filipino couture right now people are trying to, I would say, um, they're they're crafting an audience or imagining a kind of um, fashion presence that isn't necessarily dependent upon or um, completely um, uh, interested in seeking an audience in the global north, so in mm. North America or Europe. But, but instead, I'm finding that a lot of fashion designers there are either very interested in promoting Southeast Asia or um, in promoting ties to, um, say, places like Singapore, to, um, you know, Dubai, to the Middle East, um, to a more global south mm. audience. Um, and for me, part of this um, is directly stemming, I think, from post-9-11 and current global politics in which there's these new south-south circuits. And so I'm interested in thinking about how Filipino fashion is conversant with that. Mm. And then your other project that you're working on? My, and then my other project is um, it's uh, interested in um, the region or, or contemporary. Um, and this is a more, I would say, um, literary or traditionally literary project mm. in which um, I'm really fascinated by if Trans-Pacific um, was kind of uh, threading together multiple nations, multiple empires. Um, I was, I'm looking at overlaps of the transnational onto the regional. And so um, thinking about if um, for a lot of Asian American literature, um, the kind of central imaginary or central counterpoint or debate has been with a nation state. Mm. What happens when um, the region, we take up the region as actually being crucial to Asian, mm. North American identity and culture rather than the nation? And so that's, um, I'm, I'm doing that in part um, through work that I've already done on Jose Garcia Zia, but also in an essay on Monique Trong's Bitter mm. in the Mouth, mm. which should be coming out soon. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today and sh- for sharing your ideas with me and with the uh, larger podcast audience. 
Thanks so much, Christopher. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to my interview with Denise Cruz on her book, Trans-Pacific Feminities. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books and Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.